This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, looking this morning at verses 13 through 17. Matthew 3, 13 through 17. It's page 808, if you've got one of the few Bibles there, the blue Bibles and the chair racks. I'm doing something a little different today, actually doing something I don't often do. Took my text this morning from the Revised Common Lectionary. So if you should hear of other preachers who preached on this text, it may not be quite as coincidental as you think, because there are churches, preachers who do follow that uh, lectionary fairly closely. Uh, Lord willing, next week we will resume our series of studies in Exodus, uh, beginning uh, back in that series through Exodus chapter 20. Uh, but today, especially with the Lord's Supper, uh, I thought it might be good to look at a, a different text uh, that... Uh, specifically focuses on the work of Christ. And so today we're looking at a passage that, according to the logic of the lectionary, follows, of course, Christ's birth, which we celebrate at Christmas, uh, then uh, January 6th, Epiphany, the appearing of Jesus is being brought to the temple, and uh, then today his baptism, the baptism of Jesus uh, as an adult, which commences his public ministry. So this morning we're looking at Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Hear the word of God. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, there's Jordan River, to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, for it is truth. And Father, we thank you that it guides us uh, not simply into understanding what is right and what is true, but it guides us to know you. And so, Father, we pray as we study this word of yours this morning that you would lead us to understand what is true, but also, Father, lead us into a closer relationship with you and to know you better, to love you more, to worship you with all our lives, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. John the Baptist appears in the New Testament, and yet the case can be made that he is actually an Old Testament figure. In fact, some have described John as the last of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, he fulfills a prophecy made in the last couple of verses of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. The Old Testament ends with these words, 
Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Well, who is that Elijah? When would he come? Well, Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 17, when the disciples asked Jesus, why did they say that Elijah must first come? Jesus said, Elijah does come. He will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood. He was speaking to them of John Baptist. He was the Elijah who was to come, who was to prepare the way for the day of the Lord. And in fact, here is John carrying out that ministry. Now, Earlier in chapter 3, Matthew describes the ministry of John. It was essentially a ministry preparing the way for the Messiah by calling people to repentance. In other words, he was like a plow, tilling the soil of people's hearts, preparing the way for Jesus' ministry. Call people to repent. In other words, to acknowledge their sin, their sinfulness before God, to acknowledge that their lives were not pleasing to God. And that they needed to uh, to go before God and confess that sin and seek God's forgiveness, be open to God's grace, to God's provision in Jesus who is to come for their sins. And so that's what he's doing. You read about it in the first part of uh, Matthew chapter 3. Well, then here in these verses we're looking at this morning, verses 13 through 17, we read about Jesus himself coming to John, coming to receive John's baptism. Now, as we look at what John is doing, we need to recognize that John's baptism was essentially still an Old Testament rite. It was uh, an expression of repentance, of, of humbling oneself before God, of acknowledging one's need of God's grace. I think it's a mistake to equate John's baptism with later baptism, true New Covenant, New Testament Christian baptism after the Holy Spirit had been given uh, John's baptism was an expression of repentance, uh, not quite the same as New Testament covenant baptism, which is a covenant sign. At this point, John's baptism was not a covenant sign. It was an expression of one's humbling one's heart before the Lord. So it helps to understand that as you understand this, this dialogue that takes place between Jesus and his servant, John. Now, as we look at this passage, these verses pretty much can divide up into three parts to help us sort of outline it, think about it. First of all, John's reluctance here, and then Jesus' insistence, and then finally the Father's approval. First, John's reluctance. Verse 13, John's carrying out this ministry, baptizing. Uh, in fact, in verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then verse 13 says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John seems to just shrink back in horror at the thought. This is what he says, verse 14. John would have prevented him. And what he said was, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Now, there's this reluctance on the part of John to do this. And you might think at first, well, wow. Wouldn't, wouldn't that give John great credibility? What an opportunity. Jesus himself wants me to baptize him. What does that say about my ministry, right? How important it is, how important I am. Well, if you know anything about John the Baptist, you know that was the last thought that he had 
in his mind. Uh, in fact, he shrinks back from Jesus because of his sin, because of an acknowledgement of his own sin. You see, the one doing the baptizing of people who were expressing repentance was one who himself was keenly aware of his own sin and of uh, the very need that he was baptizing others for. He felt that himself. Notice what he says. I need to be baptized by you. The first thing that John says is an expression of his need for what Jesus has to offer. So John doesn't set himself above his own ministry and above those he ministers to, but he recognizes that he himself is a sinner in need of the cleansing that only Jesus can give, that that baptism of Holy Spirit and fire that he referred to. I need to be baptized by you. In fact, in John's account of this, John chapter 1, John records how uh, John the Apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John, records how when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he, he points to him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so part of John's reluctance arises out of this sense of his own sinfulness. This reluctance of his also arises for another reason. It arises because of a sense of his own role, of who he was, of his place, so to speak. Notice again what he says in verse 14. John says, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Now, there's some debate how much John knew at this point about Jesus, about who Jesus was as the Messiah, as as the Son of God. He seems to have recognized at least there was something special about Jesus. Uh, There was something unique about Jesus. Uh, In fact, the sense of Jesus' holiness, uh, maybe he, I'm sure he had been told uh, how as an infant he had jumped in the womb at the sound of the voice of the mother of his cousin, Jesus, the Messiah. And so we can assume John knew a great deal about Jesus. Maybe he didn't have the whole picture yet. Maybe he had most of it. But we didn't know this for sure. He recognized that Jesus is above John. In fact, he's just said that. We saw verse 11. Jesus, he says, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. So he had a strong sense of who he was and who Jesus was and recognized the the worth, the value of Jesus being so far higher than his own. He acknowledges that, his role. And so the sense of it is basically, I need to be baptized, and you of all people come to me? Remember um, uh, in John's Gospel, in John uh, chapter 3, when more and more people were following Jesus, and John's disciples began to be a little bit bothered by that, uh, a little bit of envy perhaps, uh, and they come to John and talk to John about that, and John uh, says, no, look, that's how it has to be, that's how it should be. Uh, that the, 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 the friends of the groom are not as important as the groom himself. And now the groom Jesus has come. And John's classic statement there in John chapter 3, verse 30, speaking of Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. John says, you're wrong to complain. Jesus has to loom larger and larger, and I need to shrink more and more into the background. So John's reluctance here grows out of a couple things. One, it grows out of a sense of his own sinfulness, grows out of a sense also of his role with respect to Jesus. And it would be helpful, I think, to sort of pause and just reflect on that. Uh, because John should not be unique in that. 
when we think about Christ. One, we should be aware of our own sinfulness, aware of our various violations of God's word, certainly outwardly. Uh, we talk about sins of omission, sins of doing, failing to do those things God requires, sins of commission, doing those things God has told us not to do. Uh, not just outwardly, but inwardly. You know, our failure, even in our hearts, to love God with all of our hearts. Uh, these various sins that are there. Do we have that same sense of sin that leads to the same kind of humility that John had? Do we have a sense of our role? Sometimes you almost get the impression from some Christians that they're the master and Jesus is the servant. Far from it. We need to have that same humility, that same sense of who we are and who Jesus is that John had, that the concern is not that we grow, but that his name grows and is known and is lifted up. So first of all, we see here John's reluctance there in verses 13 and 14 when Jesus comes to him. But then we turn around in verse 15 and see Jesus' insistence that this baptism Proceed. Now, this is what John did, but when Jesus comes, he's reluctant. He holds back. But Jesus insists, verse 15, and he says several things here in verse 15 that we need to understand. First of all, he says that this role reversal was a temporary thing. It is true that for John to baptize Jesus implies a sort of uh, humbling himself on Jesus' part before John, which John thought was, was unseemly, was improper. But Jesus recognizes that this was a temporary thing. Notice what he said, let it be so now. I don't think that's saying so much quickly as it is for the time being. Let's do, Jesus recognizes why John is reluctant, but he says, let's do this now for this moment, for the time being. We need to do this. It is uh, recognizing a role reversal, but also recognizing that it was a temporary thing. Jesus would not be always submitted to his forerunner, John. He also, Jesus insists, because it's, it's appropriate. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting. John's reaction is because of how inappropriate he sees it as being. But Jesus says, no, it is fitting. It is appropriate, at least for now, that we do this. But then Jesus really gets to the heart of the matter here, uh, and really the, the statement that's right in the middle of the passage, uh, and that is, it's necessary. He says it's fitting for us, why? To fulfill all righteousness. Now, what on earth does that mean? Uh, scholars and Bible students have studied that one for a long time, come up with different ideas. Uh, basically, I think it's one of those cases where the general sense of what Jesus is saying is, is plain enough. But when you get down and try to really make it specific, sometimes that the nuances uh, get a little intricate, a little complex. But I think the general sense of what Jesus is saying here is plain enough. When he says to fulfill all righteousness, what is he saying? Well, you think about Jesus' mission and what he came to do, to be a savior of sinners uh, by being a substitute for sinners, taking the place of sinners. Um, it, It makes perfect sense. So what, is it, what does it mean? Well, it means it's necessary that he identify with sinners. John's baptism was about people acknowledging their sin. Was Jesus acknowledging sin? No. The scriptures teach that he was tempted, but he never sinned. But Jesus' whole ministry was to stand in the place of sinners. 
Uh, Isaiah 53, one of the great servant songs of Isaiah that foretold of this suffering servant who was to come, says he was, in verse 12, he was numbered with the transgressors. Which points certainly to Jesus' death, uh, crucifixion with uh, criminals on, on one side and the other. But in a more general sense, I think that expression is, is seen in his baptism, that he numbers himself with sinners. He doesn't place himself above us. He puts himself in our place. Was Jesus coming to repent of sin in his own life? No, there was no sin. But he was coming to identify with those who had sin. And just as those were coming to John and receiving this baptism of repentance, Jesus humbles himself, putting himself in our place, willing to submit to that baptism, to stand in the place of sinners. So it was necessary because he was going to identify with sinners. It was also necessary for him to win righteousness for sinners. Jesus places himself in our place, but then he proceeds to live out under the law of God perfectly, perfect obedience, never sinning once. Why? So that you and I would have a righteousness before God. You and I have not kept God's law. You and I, if measured by God's law, are found wanting. Uh, we come up short. We miss the mark. We're guilty. We've transgressed. We failed to measure up. So that when we stand before God on our own record, we fail. Fail epically. And there are a lot of people out there, even people in, in pews of churches this morning, who somehow have this delusion that God's going to look at them and say, well, you tried pretty hard. You were sincere. You're better than most people. Uh, you know, you, you make the cut. Come on in. Foolishness. The Bible teaches nothing of the kind. God's standard is perfection. It's 100% or fail. That's why it was important for Jesus to come and identify with sinners to win a righteousness for us that we don't have by his living under the law in obedience to the law of God. That's why Jesus' life was as important as his death for our salvation. That's why if you compromise the sinlessness of Christ, you undo your own salvation or the salvation of anyone. Because Jesus, if, if Jesus sinned, he can't be our substitute. He won for us through his obedience, that righteousness to God that God requires and that we receive as a gift by faith. But it's also necessary for him to pay the penalty for sinners. So we talk about Jesus dying for sinners. Well, here again, he's, this is his first uh, visible opportunity of standing in the place of sinners, but it wouldn't be the last. That came, of course, at Golgotha, at Calvary, the cross, where Jesus identifies with his people, bearing our sins, dying under the curse of God's judgment. Not for sin he had committed, but for sins that you and I committed, sins of everyone who had, did, or would believe in him as their Savior. That's why Jesus says it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Because that was what Jesus' whole ministry was about. Fulfilling righteousness for a people who had not fulfilled righteousness in, in any, by any stretch of the imagination. That's why he came. And it begins with his identifying himself with sinners here in John's baptism. This is typically seen as, as being the commencement of his public ministry, the beginning of his public work, three years of ministry. So we've seen John, John's reluctance here, and rightly so, 
But then Jesus' insistence that this happened. It was a temporary uh, submission of himself to John. Uh, it was fitting for him to do this. This was the, the whole purpose for his coming into the world. And it was necessary. Uh, and it starts here. If he's going to be the one who stands in the place of sinners to both win righteousness for us and to pay for our sins on the cross. Then the last couple of verses point to the father's approval of what happened. You, know, you start with, with John and his instinctive shrinking back, his disapproval of this. And Jesus insists. And uh, the father, far from disapproving, approves. Verses 16, 17, you have this descent of the dove. Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Uh, and so you have this, this, the Holy Spirit coming upon him. Uh, we think, why would the second person of the Trinity need the third person of the Trinity? Well, Jesus certainly in his public ministry did things that were an expression of his divine power, of who he was as deity. But he also was fully human. And he lived out his ministry in his humanity, relying on the very same resources that he has given to you and to me as Christians. Uh, His word, which instructs us, and uh, prayer, whereby we uh, commune with our Heavenly Father. And the Holy Spirit, who empowers us. You see, God has given us those resources to live for him. Those that, and, and his humanity was those things Jesus relied upon. We see Jesus praying all the time. And it's, it's short prayers, but also extended prayers. Think of John 17, that long prayer of, of, of Jesus that is uh, recorded there. Um, but here, we, and certainly Jesus relied on the word of God. We looked at Matthew 4, where Jesus quotes scripture back at Satan. But here, we have the spirit of God coming upon him in the form of a dove, powering him, filling him in his humanity for this ministry that he's about to begin. And of course, in chapter 4, immediately it says uh, the spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But not just the descent of the dove, but the declaration of of his father. Look at verse 17. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The statement of affirmation, which, by the way, the two verses make a fine Trinitarian uh, manifestation. The Son of God is there. the, 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 The Holy Spirit of God comes upon him. And the Father, God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, speaks in a way to commend his uh, his son, his his pleasure in Jesus as he s- sets out on his public ministry here, standing uh, with, identifying in the place of sinners. Father's approval. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Well, as we look at this passage, uh, these things certainly address us because it was for us that Jesus came. The real the reality is you and I have not fulfilled all righteousness. We probably haven't fulfilled all sin, but we've probably come closer to that than we have fulfilling all righteousness. And that's precisely why we need a Savior, because Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness for all who trust in him, all who look to him, all who rely upon him. Jesus begins his ministry by humbling himself to identify with sinners. Jesus ends his ministry on the cross by humbling himself to identify 
with sinners. And just before he died, he said, it is finished. That he had accomplished that work in his identifying with us that he had come to do. And the father raises him up on the third day, which is his way of saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The father's stamp of approval on that redeeming ministry of Jesus. John uh, speaks here, or John the Baptist speaks here of the of his own sin and the righteousness of Jesus. Paul speaks of that in another way later in Second Corinthians chapter five. Speaks of that same thing. What John knew, what you and I know and need to know and need to have. Where he says, God made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge our sinfulness. We thank you for Jesus who came to fulfill all righteousness. And we thank you, Father, that as we trust in him, that our sins are atoned for, and that we wear before you the robe of the righteousness of Christ. Father, we pray that we would grow and grow in that robe and that righteousness. Thank you, Father. Nothing could change that, but pray that more and more our lives would reflect it and conform to the likeness of our Savior. And we pray in his name. Amen.